0: Welcome to the Healthcare Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhock, and today we're talking about how AI health assistants are helping drive down the cost of healthcare with Andrew Lee and Tony Dale of Buoy Health. The Bowie AI health assistant uses machine learning to converse with patients like a real doctor and help patients understand their symptoms better. Andrew and Tony, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Shelby. So I want to get to talking about Bowie's AI health assistant, but first, um, Andrew, will you tell me a little bit about how and why Bowie was founded?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to, Shelby. So um, the origin story was uh, I was doing my last rotation in in medical school uh, up here at Harvard uh, before going off to do a career in in neurosurgery. And my last rotation happened to be in the emergency room, and I was doing these 24-on, 24-off calls. And I was seeing patients middle of the night who were coming in, having read something, having Googled their symptoms, read something from WebMD or Yahoo Answers, getting scared and then doing the wrong thing. And that wrong thing was either they're coming in when they shouldn't have or worse, they got scared and decided to wait. And in waiting, things got worse. They got sicker and we had to do something more drastic to help them. And then right around then, my dad got sick. Uh, He had a mini stroke. Um, he didn't go to the doctor. Uh, when I asked him, you know, why didn't you ask, uh, why didn't you call me? He said, you're working. I was like, why didn't you Google it to figure out what to do? And he said, what am I going to find on Google? And for me, that was this emotional tipping point that led me to leave. Um, so I took a sabbatical from the school and started Buoy with three other people. Uh, and we really became obsessed with this concept of the care decision. We define as, you know, when you're sick, what do you do? You know, do you go to, to the ER? Do you go to urgent care? Do you go to a specialist? Do you go to primary care? walk-in clinic, you know, there's just a plethora of options for patients. And people, at the end of the day, just don't really know where is most appropriate. And so in building our AI health assistant, that was the problem we were really trying to That's solve. It's an
0: interesting idea, the care decision, because I think you, you hit it on the nail absolutely, is that one, people don't understand their symptoms, but two, they don't know where to start and how to even is this ER level emergency? Is this wait and see? I can absolutely see where that, that need came from. Tell me a little bit about how the actual um, interface works.
1: Sure. Um, As you said, when you started it, it actually tries to mimic a conversation that you might have with your doctor. So just like a doctor asks questions to drill down on what might be going on and then help you figure out what to do. Similarly, our program asks questions, and the way it it works is it first, you know, asks you about your symptoms and your demographics, and then says, "Okay, of the thirty thousand questions that are possible, which one is statistically most helpful?" It's going to ask that question. Patient's going to answer it, and then in real time, twenty five hundred diagnoses and thirty thousand questions get re ranked, and the next best question gets asked. And after about two or three minutes of this back and forth, we narrow the world of diagnoses down to a maximum of three reasons for and against each diagnosis and then what triage or what type of care is appropriate mm-hmm. for the patient. So the big question then is like how do we build this because obviously if it doesn't work then this is completely pointless. So we actually built Buoy from the ground up. So we actually read over 22,000 clinical papers. uh an example of a clinical paper would be, you know, uh, there's a paper that looked at the relationship between smoking and pneumonia and found that smoking increases the risk of pneumonia by a factor of four. And another paper showed that people who have pneumonia have a fever 90% of the time. So by reading that basic research, we were able to teach the program. So it's kind of like a doctor had read those 22,000 clinical papers, remembered them, and then was able to pull those statistics in real time when they're talking. It's the same type of statistical um, understanding of medicine that underlies the, the algorithm. So
0: that's a lot of data to have to process. So Tony, tell me about the the monumental task in trying to wrangle all of this data into a, a machine learning um, health assistant.
2: Right. Well, I think some of the things that uh, were mapped originally really are, is the backbone for or how it uh, operates today. So by mapping those 22,000 clinical papers, essentially what the team did was build a statistical map of medicine. And that statistical map of medicine is the engine that helps re-rank those 30,000 questions. So as you might imagine, hand mapping those uh, statistics uh, by diagnosis type was quite a monumental task. And Andrew can uh, attest to the, the late hours and the monumental amount of work as a matter of fact, um, you know, it was just uh, March of 2017 that uh, Bowie launched a public-facing uh, application. Uh, over the last four years or so, uh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into hand mapping and perfecting that algorithm. But as, as you note, um, it was quite a monumental task, but it really started with a lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears and uh, individuals mapping those statistics into the algorithm.
0: What was the importance or the significance of a human touch to this versus being able to leave it to statistics or analysis? I mean, w- you mentioned that the term statistical map of medicine, did anything like this already exist?
1: So the uh, the reason why we took this such a painstaking road um, was that the orig- this original data largely didn't exist in the right format. So you could imagine doing something a little bit different where you had a body of data and then using that data did some fancy machine learning to then understand medicine based off of that data. The classic way of thinking about this would be to take electronic medical records, uh, which is what your doctor writes into You know when they're, in, when they're interviewing you and, and chronicling what happens, is to take that EMR data and then build an algorithm on top of that to read all of those notes that your doctor wrote to then understand medicine. Mm-hmm. The big problem with that approach, though, is that patients don't talk like doctors. So unless you know, all of a sudden, patients started talking like doctors. If you train a program on how doctors talk, there's almost this Rosetta Stone problem. There's this translation problem where it can't turn around and then all of a sudden reasonably chat with a patient. So again, going back to the original problem we're trying to solve, we're really looking to help patients make better decisions in order to understand how people present with, di- with symptoms and diagnoses and what their risk factors are, we looked at, okay, where in the world is there data that we could actually cleanly understand? And that kind of boils down to the primary research that I, I talked about f- at first, which really goes into textbooks. And then our, those textbooks are read by medical students who then become doctors. And so the, the way that your doctor understands that, hey, you know, this person has a fever, It's more likely that they have a bacterial infection than a viral infection. That knowledge actually all boils back down to some primary research that was done by someone else. So we said, you know what? why don't we unlock that data by having doctors like myself literally read the paper and then turn it into something, an electronic understanding of that paper and then pull paper after paper together, such that there was a massive electronic understanding of medicine that, again, is kind of like a doctor having read those papers and memorized all of it. So right. in thinking about these different approaches, um, we, we basically said, how do you not take a shortcut? And that was the, the route we took. You know, Tony alluded to us releasing a public-facing product back in March of last year. But well, we founded the company in 2013. So it really took us four years of hard work to pull all this together to test it in a clinical setting. Uh, We actually ran a clinical trial in an urgent care where we saw hundreds of patients in the waiting room, had them use Buoy, and then see their doctor. And then we compared what the doctor said with what we had said. And we agreed with the doctor's diagnosis 90.9% of the time, which had never been done before um, at the time. So it, it has required a ton of work, um, but we think the payoff is a lot of patients today are making better decisions about their health So two
0: follow-ups to that. One inherent problem that I think doctors and healthcare professionals would agree on is the patient vocabulary, basically, for explaining their symptoms. Whether, you know, you may have opinions of whether or not you do want somebody coming in going, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm presenting with flank pain, but it's obviously there's going to be different levels of description and the quality of, of symptom identification, basically, like being able to identify what's wrong and what's happening. I guess, how do you mitigate that challenge uh, with patients not really being able to explain what they're feeling very accurately?
1: That is such a great question, uh, Shelby. So you're, you're actually really digging into our own strategy um, in that the variability of how patients describe their symptoms is something that A, you're absolutely right, doctors all talk about and know about, but B, is a major barrier to a program like ours actually working when you when you think about the differences between the way people might take a question or might, you know, describe their symptoms. And to answer your question, the only way that you can solve this is with a significant amount of patient data on how they describe their symptoms and answer questions. There is no shortcut to getting to this. And it's really similar to how there's no shortcut to doctors actually having a lot of experience seeing patients and seeing the variability of how patients will describe their flank pain and to be able to understand, oh, you know, this is, this, you know, odd way of talking about this is a uh, reflection of flank pain. Similarly, the reason why we released a public facing version of Buoy back in March, it's a free version of Buoy that, that anyone can, can use. If we had gone the pure B2B route and we had sold Buoy to every single hospital, every single insurance company, every single employer in the United States, we would not get enough usage and not get enough data to solve for the variance of how patients talk about their symptoms. So we released this free product. So that we could learn that, so that we could actually build something in the long term that could adjust for people's variability in how they talk about themselves. So, kind of our user growth. Since by the end of last year, we hit about three million unique visitors um, on BuoyHelp.com. This year, we're on pace for about thirty wow. million. And so, with each user, we're now capturing different ways in which people are talking about their symptoms, and that machine learning that um, we uh, you described at the beginning of the show is really uh, to evolve buoy to fit the variations in how patients are talking, how patients are deciphering their questions, and how they're perceiving their own symptoms and risk factors. So it's it's a major part of our strategy, and it's the only way that um, you can build something
2: that actually and, uh, works. And Shelby, why I'm so excited about our prospects is that when you think about the application of AI in healthcare right now, there are a lot of uh, efforts and a lot of companies and Solutions that are focused more on the provider side or the physician side of the AI model and and all of those efforts are incredibly important But they do have the benefit of working with the same nomenclature and the same set of data uh, Which is consistent and so that the problem that they're solving for might even be considered a little easier than what we're trying to tackle Which is the huge variance that Andrew just described in how patients describe their symptoms but also their uh, level of education and understanding about their symptoms and about what they're reading and and I say this because coming from you know more than 10 years at WebMD we did some wonderful things to be able to democratize information and get health information in the hands of of consumers to make good decisions. But one thing we could never solve for was the huge variance in levels of education and understanding of symptoms, but also personality types. Those who um, can look at the same data as another person and make a completely different care decision. So that's, uh, you know, Part of the implication of of what we're doing here is trying to normalize those things to create better outcomes.
0: I can definitely see the immense challenge, uh, but WebMD being one of the the larger players. I mean, you search online symptom checkers, and WebMD is the the first result there, but not not to disparage your your former employer, but one thing that I guess I'm seeing the difference between Buoy Health and WebMD is the level of detail that it goes into. Actually, right before the show, I got on and I tried the interface, and it is very detailed, and uh, it Goes a lot more uh, in depth than I would have expected and that I've seen from any other online symptom checker. So, I read that you recently partnered with CVS Health and their Minute, uh, Minute Clinic subsidiary. So, Tony, how is that going to, I guess, bring this more to the masses? And, and I guess, how is this all going to work?
2: Right. Uh, great question, Shelby. So, we're very excited uh, for the partnership that uh, we've initiated with CVS. Um, And for CVS, their minute clinics are an important part of their strategy. And so when you think about the primary care landscape, uh, minute clinic type encounters are part of the solution uh, to the challenge that we have in this country, which is a lack of uh, enough primary care physicians uh, to service the need. And so what we're doing in our initial use case is being able to utilize the buoy tool to be able to engage uh, consumers that come to BowieHealth.com, and Andrew mentioned, that's about 3 million and growing about a 30% monthly compounded growth rate, We're able to educate a consumer who may have a specific uh, type of uh, likely diagnosis and be able to triage them uh, to a minute clinic where they may not have thought about a minute clinic previously. They may have sought uh, more expensive care, be it an ER or maybe a specialist. But realizing that there's a Minute Clinic in their neighborhood, and connecting them with something that's convenient and appropriate uh, and lower cost to what they may have chosen.
0: So my um, the other follow up question to uh, to what you had said before, Andrew. Uh, so all of the time and um, information that went into the I guess these maps, uh, statistical maps of of medicine. With all of that data read and entered and processed, I'm just curious, though, I mean, does that information get outdated? Like, do these medical diagnoses, do they evolve or change? Or is that information pretty well standard?
1: That's a really good question. I I would say that the majority of um, information around the, the link between risk factors and diagnoses and symptoms is relatively stable. There's a lot of new papers that come out, usually around treatment changes or testing changes, which are kind of more on the forefront of, uh, of where we're headed. Not to say that there aren't new diagnoses that appear, not to say that there aren't new risk factors that have been identified. Um, so examples of that, you know, when we started reading Zika was not around. But because you have the framework for how you cover new diagnoses, how you model them, Uh, it's relatively simple for us to say, oh, you know, Zika is becoming a thing that um, is being seen more often. Let's go ahead and model that out. Um, It doesn't take a significant amount of time. And we do have an internal medical team that is constantly looking at improving our model by ingesting more uh, literature. Now, that being said, the real key though is in that machine learning It is not only adjusting for the variability that we've been talking about. It also is actually, that data in reality is more valuable and more insightful than the original data that we had fed it, in that it is now adjusting for all of these different factors uh, over time automatically, and thus is actually a better view into how patients are describing their symptoms, what risk factors they have, and what diagnoses they end up getting diagnosed with. Um, it's, it's probably better, honestly, than the clinical literature itself just given the size of the population. So on any given day or any given week, we're seeing about a million people um, hit the site. Uh, if you look at any individual clinical study, you know, you're very happy with a few hundred people. So just in terms of the, the a matter of scale, um, the data that's coming in is there's more of it right. and it's clean and it is constantly improving the algorithm, which is really exciting.
0: Andrew, something that you had mentioned in our kind of pre-interview, you said something about that you were disillusioned by how late in the patient journey that doctors could help. How is this going to revolutionize that problem?
1: Well, if you think about it, there's honestly not enough doctors, there's not enough nurses, there's not enough PAs in the world, period. So unless we all of a sudden send every single man, woman, and child to school to teach them about their bodies and teach them about medicine, it would be impossible to have enough experts on earth to help triage every single patient the second that they were sick. And so I was seeing that in the emergency room where you know I'm seeing these patients, they are either there inappropriately, wasted their time, wasted money, someone was paying for this, or worse, they were you know actively endangering their own lives. My dad was actively endangering his own life. Because at the end of the day, they' just there's just not enough emergency rooms, or not enough doctors to see every single patient the second they get sick. And so the solution here is not to you know, continue to build more emergency rooms. The solution is not to, you know, get as many doctors on the telephone. The solution is to empower the patient. The solution is to build something that is infinitely scalable that can bring the information into a digestible format that patients can understand and use themselves in order to make better decisions. So when I say I was disillusioned by how late in the journey the, the doctor was coming on board, I was really seeing the patient at least 72 hours after they originally had symptoms. What happened in that first three days, that was completely up to the whims of their decision. It was the whims of what they read online. It was to the whims of what their mom said they should do. I mean, we should move beyond... What people are reading on forums and what their mom says. I mean, I love my mom. <laughs> she didn't go to medical school, you know? So, like, right. besides her experience raising two, you know, two other kids, my other siblings, that's, that's not a lot of data to go off of. We need something better. And that's uh, why I'm so passionate. I think that's why we are so enthusiastic about our mission and, and what our impact could be for the world.
0: Andrew, Tony, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Thanks, Shelby. Shelby. And thanks to you listeners for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries. Subscribe to articles, podcasts, and creative video. Until next time, I'm your host, Shelby Skurhop.